Welcome. Here we are with our resident Republican, Democrat, and Independent coming together in a civil discussion of today's issues. Uh, I am our resident Republican, Jacob. On our left, we have Brandon. Say hi, Brandon. Hello. And our Independent, Ali. Hello. We'll... We've had, uh, since our last episode, quite a few uh, happenings in the world that has uh, redirected uh, slightly our uh, conversation while, um, coincidentally, tailoring quite well with our uh, inaugural episode uh, discussing Washington's inaugural or farewell speech. Uh, namely, we've had the unfortunate passing of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a.k.a. the Notorious RBG. So we'll start with, uh, let's just uh, have a moment to, uh, to discuss, uh, you know, losing RBG and, you know, what that means for the court and to history. Um, and then we can get into a discussion on uh, where we go from here. Uh, Ali, do you want to do you want to start? Well, I mean, as far as her legacy goes, she's, I mean, she spent her entire career uh, fighting for women's rights. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we take for granted uh, that she accomplished. Uh, I saw a wonderful list the other, the other day for what she did, and I thought it was perfectly suited. Let me pull it up real quick. Well, Um, pulling that up, I just want to say uh she was a very hard working individual and if you look at her uh early life she grew up as the daughter of basically two immigrant families coming together her mother was a second generation uh, american citizen and her father was uh, immigrant from the Ukraine, and she also lived in a neighborhood uh, growing up that currently, I believe, is a predominantly black neighborhood. And she, so it's it seems like she probably had to work pretty hard to get to the position that she found herself in, and it can't really say what her uh, ambitions really were, but it seems more like a position that she was given after being doing such hard work. And it was like, Hey, you're doing amazing work. You've worked so hard your entire life. Here is this high position of honor that we're bestowing upon you. Well, I mean, she, uh, she went to Cornell university and graduated in the fifties, um, and then went to law school at Harvard. So, I mean, at, at the time, especially, uh, law was predominantly male period. So, I mean, it would have been difficult for her to find work. So it would have been that hard work that got her anywhere, no matter what. But I mean, looking back at the stuff she's accomplished, I think the biggest one is obviously the ACLU. Uh, I couldn't find the list that I was, that I had prepared. Uh, (laughs) So the ACLU being uh, honestly to to me, the biggest thing that she did because the American American civil liberties union uh, still holds a lot of power and it's what 40, no 50 years old now, almost. Yes. Yes, that's true. Right. I of course have a uh, interesting perspective uh, on the notorious RBG uh, having I fairly recently graduated from law school and uh, being, uh, you know, shoved uh, her, her descents and Scalia's descents ad nauseum uh, for a lot of entertaining re- reading. And uh, so, you know, you, uh, you really get to know the person, uh, you know, in their style and their writing. And uh, I bring up, uh, Scalia, uh, partially because I think together they represented uh, a, a sort of uh, golden age when it came to 
um, folks who can disagree and be the best of friends. I, uh, I was reading uh, earlier today, and I, I recalled uh, when Scalia passed away that there were tributes from all the, the, the Supreme Court justices and she wrote, from our years together at the D.C. Circuit, we were best buddies. We disagreed now and, and then, but when I wrote for the court and received a Scalia dissent, the opinion ultimately released was notably better than my initial circulation. Justice Scalia nailed all the weak points, the, quote, applesauce and the argle bargle, and gave me just what I needed to strengthen the majority opinion. He was a jur- jurist of captivating brilliance and wit. And uh, you know, likewise, there have been tributes uh, from from the uh, her, um, Ginsburg's uh, fellows on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Glowing, and I think uh, that's what we're going to be missing um, most from Ginsburg's absence is that, uh, again, echoing our discussion on Washington's farewell address. Uh, that uh, she was one of the last greats, I think, who, who um, uh, embodied the, the spirits of coming together and that countervailing points of view can actually make for, for better law and for, for better policy in the end. And that said, I, I also wanted to discuss um, uh, one element of her legacy, though, that to me has been concerning, and that is uh, her almost mythical proportions that she's taken on uh, in pop culture. And I wondered uh, if either of you had any opinions on, on whether the sort of deification of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is something to be concerned about. And, and I, yes and no. And I guess I, you know, sorry, I'll, I'll preface my, my question. Why I raise it in, in the sense that, I don't think there's been a Supreme Court justice except for maybe Scalia, but I think she left him, you know, in her in her dust when it comes to the place that she has taken in the public sphere. Supreme Court justices for years and years were sort of the the unknown. Uh, if you ask people, you know, name a Supreme Court justice, you know, maybe they'd get one and, and only because they went to their school or they're from their hometown or something like that. So I think there's something... Uh, to be considered there do we want our supreme court justices to be pop stars as it were i mean so i think it's kind of cool that uh that people are paying attention to the supreme court and who's on the supreme court actually um matters to people Mm -hmm. now because like you said they they weren't really paid attention to before and there's been a number of major supreme court decisions that people strongly disagree with now um obviously the big one that people talk about is roe v wade um and i don't want to go into that one because there's not really i don't think there's really a right answer on that entire issue but the 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 fact is would roe v wade have turned out the same way then uh or now or if uh when we take into consideration the star power that a supreme court justice has or brown versus board of education right you know these are landmark decisions that you know not just that didn't just you know change one or two little issues they had broad sweeping implications Mm -hmm. um so maybe it's good that people pay attention to who's there you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't have told you uh, all of the justices. Now people know. Right. No, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, Brandon. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I was just going to say, uh, I agree that it's, with your initial comment of yes and no, Ollie, because, yeah, it's great that people are looking and actually paying attention to what's going on with the Supreme Court now. Um, more so than in the past, because uh, a lot of people now know who is on the Supreme Court. A lot probably still don't, but to kind of pick up on the no, it's people want to be popular. So if there is more attention on the Supreme Court, that can kind of influence the Supreme Court justices' decision making because. They're not going to be want to be the justice that 
makes everyone mad by saying, yes, black children can go to school with white children. No, you can't get an abortion. Yes, you can get an abortion. Like, that, no one wants to be the one that's going to make those people angry. And so, if the Supreme Court does have this kind of star power kind of thing and is more in the public eye and pop culture, then that can kind of influence what's being done in the court, where it should just be as neutral and to the Constitution and the law as much as possible. Yeah, and I tend to, you know, agree. Uh, you know, obviously, um, I, I have my own biases here, um, and it's also uh, I'm heavily influenced by my philosophy on the role of the judiciary. Um, but you know, that is one concerning aspect. It really has something to do with Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, and more of a reflection on you know our society uh, today, and. Um, and, you know, uh, what, what we're going to do. She did many great things in her life, uh, but I do think it's, it's something to be uh, uh, concerned about. I read a Vox uh, article this week uh, that touched on this a little bit, um, talking about how people have jumped on, uh, you know, her death and the movement to, to replace her in the fight uh, for monetary gain. You know, lots of, there's so much uh, marketing of materials that, of course, she never saw a dime of when she was alive, you know, all this uh, notorious RBG wear and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I do think, uh, the, you know, the, the law should be what matters. Uh, moving. Oh, sorry, Ali or Brandon, do you have something else to say? Uh, it should be uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, the president uh, is uh, it can be concerning when when they're too uh, too focused or too focused on their, their personality and sort of the cults of the, the personality um, that, you know, it, it, there is a certain danger there. And I just wanted to uh, to kind of put that out as, as something of a of a caution uh, you know, as we as we. Uh, uh, mourn her passing and celebrate her life that we make sure we don't uh, create a, a potentially dangerous precedent uh, regarding how we treat and our expectations of Supreme Court justices. I, I think the... I, I did have something to say. You, you talked about the, the star power. Uh, that does work both ways and sometimes in places that it shouldn't. Um, there's a video now of, you know, uh, RBG is lying in state uh, at the Capitol, and uh, kudos to her, first woman ever to lie in state at the Capitol. That's amazing. Um, and the president did the right thing uh, by going to pay respects. Uh, that's not something that I use to describe the current administration very often, but he does do some things right. <laughs> <laughs> on occasion. But on occasion, this was the right thing. He went to pay respects to a... Uh, a member of the Supreme Court that was well-respected, it seems to me, by everybody. And the crowd boos him. <laughs> and, you know, I can, I can say that my respect for his office as president has diminished during his presidency. Mm -hmm. But no amount of dissatisfaction with the politics of the president should take away from the respect given to the honored dead. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel very strongly about this, but you know, the star power of Trump in this, in this particular case was the, the negative, uh, mm -hmm. you know, reputation that he has affected something that should have been very similar. Right. And so your argument is 100% valid because it can really go both ways. Yes. And it's just something to be mindful of, you know, that, that uh, we, we, we can't allow ourselves to be swept up in, uh, in this type of uh, ticky-tack uh, reprisals uh, because it really does diminish, uh, you know, our form of government, our, our, you know, and it's honestly kind of embarrassing, uh, you know, even more than the, the, our leaders on occasion <laughs> on, on the, the world stage when, you know, even at somebody's uh, death and memorial, 
where people are coming together and, and you have people booing from a sense of, you know, almost like a, a football team coming into an enemy or, you know, to opposing teams stadium getting booed. And that's just, it, it rubs me the wrong way personally. I agree. If we, uh, if you don't mind, I feel like we uh, should move on to then what what comes after uh, RBG um, and the news of uh, Trump's intention to move on uh, with a selection, a nominee for the, to to take uh, Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, th- this week, it was uh, announced that uh, it would, in fact, be Amy uh, Barrett very controversial figure for for uh, a lot of people uh, but before we get into talking about her or or, or anything like that uh, let, let's get everyone's take on this decision to move forward with a nomination and uh, confirm, uh, presumably confirmation before the election obviously everyone has been pointing to uh, what seems to be a, a hypocrisy of the Republicans in the Senate uh, to push for a quick uh, hearing and confirmation now when, when in 2016 uh, they, they iced out President Obama when he attempted to nominate uh, Judge Garland. Ali, well, how about you, uh, you, you start and, and tell us a little bit of your feelings on, on what the Republicans plan to do? Well, so the first thing I'm going to say is I want to mention Lindsey Graham. He was on a talk show uh, in 2016 talking about, um, you know, blocking Merrick Garland. Um, And he even said that if it is, you know, the last year of Trump's presidency and a a position comes open on the Supreme Court, they will not move forward on a nomination. Will not. (laughs) And he said it on national television. And he said and, and he even said, and you can hold me to it. (laughs) <laughs> you can use my words against me, I believe you said. Yeah. So here we are, Mr. Graham. <laughs> so Brandon. and now, now, now let me let me let me follow that up and say from a legal perspective, what they are talking about, what they're doing is 100% in line with the constitution. Correct. And um and that's fine. The, the, the issue is the same group of Republicans chose to block Merrick Garland and are saying, hey, let's move forward with, with Amy Barrett. So either they were wrong by blocking Merrick Garland, and if so, they need to own up to it, or they're wrong now, and they need to follow <laughs> their own precedent. Admit hypocrisy? Never. Brandon, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, I believe that to announce the nominee, the presidential nominee for the vacant Supreme Court seat so soon after her passing is a little bit in poor taste. That feels very, very fast. Um, And it could be partly because of the time we're in, uh, because what really is the progression of time right now. Uh, <laughs> I personally feel like it should still be June or July. Uh, but here we are in middle of September. It's fall uh, now. End of September. <laughs> end of September, yeah. <laughs> Time's a construct. I said, I, I'm not sure what, <laughs> the, what the date is, actually. Um, just everything's blurring together. So to me, it just feels pretty fast that a nominee was, it is, I see that it is perfectly within the president's right to and point a nominee at this junction before uh, the November election, because that is part of the responsibility of the president, uh, given by the president uh, for the Supreme Court in 2016 to say though that they are not going to give the president's nomination for Supreme Court a vote on the Senate floor until after the election 
the um, then four years later, three years later, say, no, we're going to push this nomination through, like they're going to be heard on floor of the Senate, that kind of points to, I think, where the, that is, uh, because they could be seeing this as 2016, we're about to get a Republican guy in office. We want him to pick the Supreme Court justice. Uh, Senate Republicans' minds are at, as opposed to now, I think they're a little concerned that they may not have a Republican president next year. They may have a Democrat president next year. Right. And so they're trying to make sure that the Republican guy fills this vacant seat, putting a generally more right bias onto the Supreme Court, as opposed to there being more of a neutral bias. Mm-hmm. Well, and so let me step in as the as the resident Republican and and do what I, I haven't been able to do much of, of late, and, and, that, and that is defend the Republican Party. Uh, I will say, you know, I do believe that there are a number of differences between now and 2016, not necessarily justifying their, their actions entirely. Um, but you know, we do have uh, a Republican Senate and a Republican president. And this this process is, you know, is a is a two man game Um, takes two to tango, the president and the Senate and the Senate's role in this process, you know, from the Constitution is to to give advice and consent for uh, these positions, uh, not only on the Supreme Court, but also on executive uh, officers. Um, but in the in the instance of the Supreme Court and other lower judges, you know this is a this is probably one of the greater enumerated duties of both the Senate and the President. And it, it because you know we do have a three co-equal branch form of government, and this is one of those weird times. I don't think people really think about it where. The two other, you know, um, spheres of power uh, are having to appoint their other counterbalance. And it really is a, a, a unique process in our form of government. Um, from the get-go, from all the way from Washington, um, as we, you know, we've been discussing him and, and the value of his, his precedents that he, he set, um, he was one of the first to de-emphasize the advice portion of the Senate's role and really just ask for consent. You know, he, he, he went with a list, he went with names back when the government was a lot smaller and when the, the, the court was, was a lot less important and basically said, hey, please c- consent to appointing my guy unless you can give me a reason not to. And through the years, you know, the trappings of our legal precedent and cases, but procedural precedents. Uh, and so I'm very weary of the Republicans you know, doing anything to compromise those procedures, which I believe are one of the hallmarks uh, of our system of government that protects our, you know, way, our, our way of life and, and our, our coming together with competing interests, you know, to form one, you know, one government. Um, that said, in, in this instance, you know, we do have a, a sort of completely in-house game. We have the Republican Senate and the Republican uh, of the Senate process have been formed. And I, for one, uh, believe as a Republican that precedent matters, not, not, not only legal presidency. And in a sense, they can do whatever they want. And, you know, there's no uh, we know there's there's no legal even need for for hearings. If technically, if the Senate just wanted to say, "Hey, we we like Amy and and we're going to vote up on her," um, they can they can do that. It's only their their own their own uh, internal rules of the Senate. Nothing from the Constitution requires them to do that. Um, but all that to be said, I am still weary of of the precedent because the. The, what was argued back in 2016 was that the, the, the American people uh, in 2014 had turned against President Obama's agenda and had given uh, the, the Republicans the Senate. That was their, their justification was, you know, we, we shouldn't allow you to be appointing someone 
uh, the, the, uh, to the, the third co-equal branch when your agenda isn't even supported by the people anymore. So went the argument, at least. So now, like you say, Brandon, there's absolutely no guarantee that, that President Donald Trump will be reelected. And so there's the same rationale still applies that, you know, you know, the uh, uh, the American people may have turned against your uh, your agenda, Mr. President. And so you, you don't necessarily get to, to put someone on the Supreme Court. Um, and because I, 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 I do think it's a uh, it's a dangerous precedent to. Um, to flip flop in this manner and to really it, it's one of the more egregious instances of party politics, but at the same time, they're perfectly within their rights, but that doesn't make it right. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah, I also do believe that turned against uh, have turned against Donald Trump as both of you have well, Brandon flat out uh, said and uh, Jacob, you've uh, you've implied um, to the point that members of the Republican Party went and spoke at the Democratic National Convention in favor of Joe Biden. You have the Lincoln Project going on and various other, uh, you know, PACs talking about how Biden is the better choice. And these are predominantly Republican groups saying, no, we need to get away from that. Right. Um, I do think that the Republicans are likely to lose the the Senate uh, and they've already lost the house, obviously. So it's going to be the same situation, but the other way, right? Which of course is my problem with having two political parties anyway. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up the house because, you know, again, even though, as we, we all know, it, it is the, the Senate's responsibility solely to, to advise and consent on appointments. Um, but the Senate is also, per, you know, pr- uh, purposely designed not to change very quickly with the times, uh, whereas the House is made to literally have the potential of being turned over every two years. You know, everyone's shown, shown the door uh, if, uh, if the American people, if their, their constituents, you know, want it. Now, whether that's a, a, a difference with, without a, uh, you know, whether it matters, um, I can't say. But, you know, it's interesting that the power is rests with the Senate on purpose and not with the House. So it possibly could be that really the, the, the great uh, irony is this, this argument uh, of the Republicans that, you know, that in 2016 they were reflecting the, um, the will of the people. Uh, well, right now, the will of the people, if you define it by where the House is sitting, is with the Democrats. But constitutionally, it was given to the Senate. So one way or the other, it's, it, it, it's, it's sketchy kind of, you know, one-eyed reasoning uh, across the board. I can't say which, which way is correct, uh, the correct way to characterize it but i do think that uh no one who made those arguments in 2016 can really with a straight face say they haven't gone back on it also it's still part of what we discussed last episode was uh is a lot of it is how yeah and it's a bunch of we're doing this as for the party this is the party and it's all about just if you're not with me, you're against me. Uh, and so uh, I kind of pointing back at the Republicans that are endorsing Biden. Uh, I shared on Facebook a uh, cluster of images that a uh, former college professor of mine shared signs, bumper stickers, t shirts and stuff, and this one very staunch conservative, uh, he says conservative, but he is Republican, a friend of mine who I've gotten into several comment debates with, as Ollie can uh, attest to, today he comments (laughs) saying, I get not voting for Trump as Republican, but you are not a Republican and definitely not conservative if you vote for Biden. 
you get I see that the Republicans that are voting for Trump are voting solely based on party, whereas a lot of people they're seeing this election as a fight for the soul of America, and they're seeing voting for Trump is voting against what America stands for and what America believes in. And so showing a bunch of Republican for Biden-Harris to allow Trump, which, again, is totally within his legal right, and everything is within Senate's legal right to push this forward, could go against the values of the United States. And uh, Amy Barrett, she is also a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge that was put into place by Trump. So it kind of lends to a little bit of the conspiracy kind of thing that Trump is trying to instill his cronies in as many facets of the government as possible. Not saying I want to go down this line of debate, but that is kind of an argument that can be made. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I disagree in one aspect when it comes to uh, how both sides are characterizing this, 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 uh, this election and these issues, because I think the Republicans who uh, are voting for Trump, um, they're voting for, for him individually. They are, uh, there are a lot of people who are um, wholly devoted to him. Uh, this is some may say to an unhealthy degree and uh yeah i uh, and but they but that that being said they're doing it because in their minds he's protecting uh everything that america stands for and the values of america they they they, they, they firmly believe that i don't i don't discount their um their zealousness uh one bit and their belief in in um in that um but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I hesitate to uh, to say that uh, um, say that there's any issue with um, with uh, him appointing Amy uh, Barrett um, because he previously appointed her to the circuit court. Because in the end, I mean, that's just his job. I mean, everyone, you know, we should be concerned about who he's placed in certain positions. But uh, you know, she was a darling of Republicans long before Trump was a Republican. <laughs> As if uh, we we do not we cannot forget that that wasn't that long ago, um, and uh, it's it's one of the great ironies that I think one of the could be one of the last great fights of President Trump's tenure is going to be um, um, for a Supreme Court justice that is uh, terrifying the pro uh, pro choice uh, side of the country. Uh, when Trump himself uh, was, was previously recorded as being pro-choice uh, prior to uh, prior to his his ever ever uh, joining um, the political world, uh, when he first was uh, giving hints and, and winks that that he may run for for president or some other office someday um, in the eighties and nineties, and uh, so it, to me, what's what's funny is not that. Or what's what's concerning is not why the Republicans are are voting, but um, but uh, why they think that Trump is the, the man to protect them. But in this one particular instance, he's actually doing exactly what what they've wanted all along, which is give them they believe a shot at taking out Roe versus Wade, which I know we're not going to discuss for obvious reasons. Uh, it is weaved in and out of this discussion for this position, even though there are innumerable other, uh, and I would say at times, more currently pressing issues uh, that will be before the court. Well, I mean, so Donald Trump, he, you know, you mentioned that he, uh, he flip-flops a lot. Um, he has. Uh, and that, I mean, that in and of itself is, you know, disconcerting. Um, the biggest thing about the ones that are supporting Donald Trump right now on the basis of it's the American thing to do is that, I mean, the same individual that uh, Brandon was referring to earlier 
um, had a discussion with me in which he openly acknowledged that Donald Trump is morally bankrupt and reprehensible, <laughs> but it's okay because his policy is what matters. And, I'm, and I, I said, well, you know, his morality is what influences his policies. That's going to be true for anybody. So morality is absolutely important. You can't, you, you know, you can't separate the morality from poli- policy decisions. You can't. You judge the, the tree by its roots. <laughs> exactly. In this case, his roots as well. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on if you want to listen to Mary or not. <laughs> I believe there were a couple other discussion points that you guys had brought up that I'm uh, I'm forgetting at this moment. Some uh, some of the comments that Trump has made this this week. Um, well, not necessarily this week, but over the past couple of weeks. Uh, one of them is that he has repeatedly stated his intention to quote unquote negotiate further terms. Um, that is, I mean, to say it's alarming. <laughs> is an understatement and it's not because not because i disagree with him uh, on just about everything um it's because the 22nd amendment was put in place for a specific reason you know george washington set the precedent of saying two terms done uh that i mean that's what we're discussing mm-hmm. right and here we are, you have a, a, a sitting president saying, I'm going to try and negotiate going against the Constitution. <laughs> we call that a classic red flag. <laughs> I, I mean... Well, and also, doesn't the uh, inaugural address say, I will uphold the Constitution? Constitution. So, his oath, oath of office. Yeah, he is breaking... If he perceive or pursues going for a third term that is breaking his oath of office so yeah i mean i so i have uh two uh very uh very passionate feelings about this both of which uh i I maintain despite uh their their seemingly contradiction in nature uh the first is as a conservative you know this is the type of thing that just you know makes my skin crawl because you know, we're, the the thing that we we base mo- most of our paranoia around is uh, is government officials abusing the power, or you know, the, the classic you know rise of a dictator, king, what have you. And so, when you have any individual claiming to try to want to grab more power than than they're constitutionally given, uh, that should get every, give every conservative and a, a Republican and every American. Every human with a pulse uh, with some reservation. Um, that said, you know, this is just par for the course with Trump. Like, you know, this is the wall all over again. Where's the wall? Uh, he says it to get a rise out of people and he, he get to galvanize people. But is he actually going to going to try to stay in office? You know, who's to say because it hasn't happened yet you know we have we have years and years of precedent that says that you know even the worst of our presidents have known when it's their time to walk away and that's something that we've been we've had a lot of screw ups in our history but that's one of the few things that as, as a nation we really have uh been an exemplar of is, is the, the the peaceful transfer of power and you know absent one <laughs> major civil war uh due to the transfer of, of power uh we, you know we haven't had uh heads on pikes we haven't had uh street mobs uh you know barricading the capitol building and and taking control and so anything that 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 tends to undermine that uh, should be denounced. Well, and it's interesting that you're talking about the, uh, the peaceful transition of power because he was directly asked about the peaceful transition of power. And his response to that was there won't, there won't be a peaceful transition (laughs) of power because there won't be a transition if you throw out the ballots. (laughs) Yeah. That was something he said very recently, but the past, at least two years, he has been saying when asked about uh, honoring the uh, um, the results of the election, he says 
well, we'll just have to see about that. <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. And it's like, that is not something a president leader should say when that are you going to leave office if everyone who is giving you your position says, we don't want you? Like, that is not something a leader would say. No, absolutely. It sounds to me like... Oh, no. I, well, I was going to say, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, this is, again, I, I 100% believe that he, does, he, he doesn't mean anything that he's saying. It's just one of those things he, to, to get a rise out of people. Uh, which feeds to his base, who love when he can get underneath, uh, you know, whether it's the media skin, the Democrats, whoever it is, he feeds off of it. At the same time, though, um, even if, uh, you know, a hundred times, you know, out of a hundred, he would never do this. uh, I've said from the get go with him and my lifetime when there when there are things that they've done, said, uh, or, uh, or, or uh, legislature, le- legislation that uh, it's not always about the intent of, of the president and what, what he uh, eventually, hopefully she uh, uh, intended, um, but what those who follow them will use, uh, will take that and, and, and run with, uh, by which I mean... The fact, the fact of the matter is we've seen a rise in a lot of conspiracy, you know, um, right wing, um, you know, uh, what, you, what you call it, militia groups or anything like that, that really do believe in things like the QAnon and the like, this great conspiracy against Trump and, and Trump followers so when he says things like that, it, it does come off as sort of a rallying cry um, for, 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 for those, to, uh, those people to incite violence and, you know, potentially insurrection. Well, the thing is, what you're, what you're saying is that he's all bark and no bite, except whenever he's made, he said he's going to do something and then he tries to get Congress to do it, uh, to do it and they're like, um, <laughs> no. He just signs an executive order. And of course, that executive order eventually gets uh, put down in the courts, but he's still acting on these statements. So he's saying he's going to do these things. He's going to do it. And when you look at, okay, well, he says he's going to do this, but he's not really going to do it. He's already talking about, you know, um, making sure that, quote unquote, loyal electors are selected in, uh, in several states to make sure that they will vote for him even if the ballot goes the other way i mean everything that he everything that he does to me uh you know these statements that i don't know we'll have to see it sounds to me like a con man who's got something up his sleeve right and i think he 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 likes to he likes to build that image and his followers love him for it and and even if then if he doesn't act on it or if uh he fails in the attempt you know He's able to then pin it on this grand conspiracy, whether it's deep state, QAnon, or uh, just the establishment, the media, whoever it is. Uh, that's it's always someone else's fault, but but his, and it all just feeds back into his his base and his support. Um, but these these statements, like the. Uh, the loyal electors, you know, this is this is foundational you know, uh, f- foundational issues that uh, traditional uh, advocates for, uh, you know, our Republican way of, of government, of self-government um, should should not scoff at. Even if he's not serious and even if he doesn't follow through with it, um, the insinuation is enough to, because now all of a sudden he's given that legitimacy in the eyes of many of his supporters and so if, even if he's not able to uh, to accomplish it, you know, as uh, as one of the 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 many King Louis of France said, you know, after me, the flood, you know, the, the, the good times are, are now. But, uh, you know, beware of what's going to come after me. And uh, that's that's one of my biggest worries when people try to dismiss his rhetoric uh his dangerous rhetoric like this it does matter and and leaders should set a good example 
for the upholding of the Constitution and of our hard-fought rights. Well, I mean, but when he says stuff like that, I, w- I want to take this just a step further. When he says stuff like that, when he says the comments about the mail-in ballots, um, when he talks about uh, fraudulent votes, when he talks about all of these all of these aspects, everything that he's saying there um, are things that if carried to, you know, the, the idea is if carried to uh, their natural end, uh, delegitimizes our election process. Absolutely. Well, he's also, uh, during the 2016 campaigning, he instilled a distrust in all of news media. He's set journalists as the bad guys. And since then, he has set Democrats as the bad guys. And now he's saying that our voting system is immensely flawed and it needs correcting by instilling loyal electors and stuff like that. And he is. Well, I mean. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say everything that you just mentioned uh, goes back to what uh, Jacob, and please forgive me if I infer this incorrectly, but. Everything that we, we're talking about here, these aren't things that a president of the United States does. These are things that dictators do. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, he is not a leader. He is the sleazy salesman trying to sell you a car that has been put in a position of power that he should not have. Mm-hmm. So I, I will I will come to uh, President Trump's defense uh, to a certain extent, only to say, of course, that all presidents have, you know, most leaders, you know, use use tactics of a certain ilk as this. But I think what's the most dangerous about Trump is that he he strips away the trappings of at least pretending to to care or to try to be nuanced in, in what he's saying. And part of that goes to, you know, the image that he's built with this base of being a sort of, you know, I, I'm always r- reminded of the uh, kind of uh, oxymoron that Sarah Palin described him as a blue collar billionaire, which uh, I haven't had a chance to look at the tax returns uh, that have, or, or tax information that have been released today. But uh, I think at least one of those things can be debunked. Um, but the, uh, you know, he, he tends to strip it down to a very, very, uh, simple, strong man type of rhetoric. I mean, there's always been leaders who have come to power, even in the U S who basically follow the strong man, uh, you know, image that, you know, people want someone who, who makes them feel safe. Um, he, he takes the, the strategy that there is and has been a conspiracy against the common man in America for some time, both Democrats and Republicans, apparently now even Chris Wallace and Fox News, all part of the grand conspiracy against them. And that anytime he says these things, he's doing it because he's playing the game that, uh, that the, this, this, whatever grand conspiracy you want to plug in, um, was all he, basically that he will fight fire with fire, and the only problem there is <laughs> a lot of times there is no fire. He, he's making it up. It's it's a it's a straw man, and uh, but the people eat it up because they want a leader uh, deep down. They want it's one of those dirty secrets. They want a leader who will fight dirty for them. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with I guess there's nothing wrong with fighting dirty, but. I mean, at a certain point, you have to look at it and say, there's fighting dirty, and then there's just wrong. Yeah. Well, and, and also to call him a blue-collar billionaire, like, I feel like, I doubt he has ever <laughs> touched a wrench or a screwdriver. Like, but of course, that's... if he's got a remote and it takes a screwdriver, <laughs> he probably passes it off to some assistant and be like, I need batteries. Give me batteries. Yeah, no, no. And that's that's been the, the, the great uh, bizarre nature of his rise uh, with with voters 
is we all can we all know it's it's we can debunk all of these things we can debunk the fact that he's you know quote unquote one of us you know that he he did it the the hard way uh we can debunk the fact that he's been on the side of you know uh, marriage morality you know, uh, anti-abortion, all these things are, are, it's the actual record. And he hasn't even done that good of a job of, of hiding, uh, the, 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 these facts. And yet people don't care because he just, he gives them a sense of he's fighting for me, even though he, I think they, they deep down know that he doesn't care about certain values that have been held by the Republican party and by, large sectors of the country, both Republican and Democrat, but they think that it doesn't matter as long as he's fighting for what we believe. We don't care how he lives his life and the, the way he does it. And that's why the people will support him now with, with Amy Barrett's uh, nomination. It is, uh, I've heard a number of people say, and I've resurrected what the argument of many hesitant Republicans in 2016 who said, yes, but the Supreme Court. We don't like him, but the Supreme Court. (laughs) Well, I don't know about it really being the... We like him because he's fighting for stuff. I think part of it is whenever you say, oh, Trump believes in uh, marriage, well, it's like, well, he's had four marriages. Does he really, or what is it? It's not that they don't care. And numerous affairs. Don't forget numerous affairs. Uh, It's not that they don't care. It's that it's going to be, oh, well, that's fake news. That's not true. That's not right. No, but it's like you guys said, though, about the the acquaintance of of yours. And and, and I've had several people, though, that they just they don't care. And they say it's about the policy. They don't care in their minds. Uh, and we discussed this a little bit of, of uh, say, George W. Bush's fall from favor with, with uh, certain Republicans is that, you know, I think everyone can agree, at least once he became sober and became a family man, George W. Bush, you know, embodied and was living and exemplifying, you know, the, the values of, you know, the, the evangelical uh, coalition in the Republican Party. They think, though, that as much as he embodied those things, he didn't do enough to fight for and protect, uh, you know, special interests of of the evangelical right uh, or or other sectors that they think that it doesn't matter if you uh, we don't care how you walk. We just want you to talk the talk and and legislate, uh, you know, the the way we want. We care less if you I think that that's one of the kind of shocking aspects of, of Donald Trump's rise to me personally is because I do believe, you know, there, there are two aspects of the president. There is the, the power that he has as president. And then there's the authority that we give him as a leader, you know, outside of his enumerated powers. Uh, presidents do affect our culture, our, our society and, and our value systems and I think it, you know, it, it should matter that he is not an exemplar of, of so many of the values that I personally, as a, as a Christian Republican. Well, then, I mean, people, you hear people talk about how, uh, you know, these, the protests are going on and some of them have, in fact, turned into riots. Um, and, you know, the, the Democrats have become significantly more uh, combative. And as you just said, the president influences um influences the culture of the country as well so is it any surprise that i mean discourse at the dinner table has become vitriolic no not at all i think i think it's not surprising at all this is you know we 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 take a great uh um it goes both ways you know we we get the presidents that that reflect us at times and sometimes then the president's uh, you know, influences us back and whatnot. You know, we see, see that with, you know, the swing after a lot of distrust of, of the presidents like Johnson and Nixon um, and, and even Ford. But then, you know, we got Jimmy Carter, the man who, who uh, you know, looked on, on a woman with, with lust in his heart and, you know, had to, you know, had to apologize to his wife. So the, uh, 
it's interesting the the waves of of who we as a nation turn to uh in in in, in uh, as the times go on i mean what a what an interesting collection of people between bill clinton george bush barack obama and donald trump like we uh we really know how to pick them uh but but we don't really we don't seem to have a a solid uh <laughs> formula except for right now that they they seem to all uh have to be men so that seems to be the only thing in, in that I think most of those men have in common, except this one point I, uh, that, uh, as we all know, um, those previous presidents um, do actually respect each other, which I think is another value that, that we've, we've lost in the, the current administration is this tendency to, uh, to hate those who came before us um, with, a, with a vitriol that uh, – tends to continue to entrench uh, our, our country into into camps. Well, I think it's uh, kind of on those that you bring up respect because I feel like that is the big thing that is missing. As mentioned with uh, RVG and Scalia, they both respected each other even though they had opposing viewpoints i respect both of you i respect my very staunch republican friend and it's we've lost that thought of this is america this is the united states land of the free home of the brave i have my opinion you have your opinion we both may be right. We both may be wrong. I may be right. You may be wrong. You may be right. I may be wrong. <laughs> Who cares what it really is? You have your opinion. That is perfectly fine. I have my opinion. That is perfectly fine. And we can agree to disagree and still respect each other. But people don't see that. It is that whole you're either with me or against me, and I just want to, real quick, touching back on the whole conspiracies of QAnon and all of that, Michael Caputo, he went on to Facebook Live and did a rant about there being a secret, like, hit group for, like, him and Donald Trump, and it's just like, <laughs> really, <laughs> really, we have. You can't prove me they don't a... exist. Just kidding. <laughs> well, you can <laughs> prove that I am not an immortal <laughs> until proven that I am mortal. <laughs> so, but it still is just like you have the head of the Department of Health and Human Services saying that there is people out to kill him <laughs> but uh, I just googled him and apparently within the past three days he has been diagnosed with cancer so that may- maybe played a part may- into maybe. it I don't maybe. know but it's still, well, it's still just one of those things where it's like well, really? I think if someone were to try to take out Donald Trump or one of his cronies in that way uh, that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen because it turns them into a martyr and legitimizes everything. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, we're running a little low on time. I, I, I do want to uh, suggest, you know, again, you bring up um, how, uh, you know, partisan we, we've gotten. Um, and uh, to come back to the, the debate on the Supreme Court and how we're going to fill this seat. You know, I think I, I'm going to leave you guys with with a suggestion that I, I do think we need to really rethink how that process goes and the role of the president and the Senate in uh, in, in the um, selection and confirmation of of the Supreme Court, because it, it, it is separate and, and, uh, and apart from decisions on exact executive level cabinet positions and other officers that you know, that they appoint and, and confirm. I, I, I honestly believe, uh, and, and this is my uh, naivete coming in as an idealist, uh, though I try to hide that fact, uh, but I think it needs to start becoming that the Supreme Court 
needs to start becoming a place where moderation is the key. And by which I mean, I think the the president and the Senate, Senate Judiciary Committee or any other committee that uh, is appointed by the Senate um, should really engage the president in the actual selection process. You know, we've sort of, from the get-go, um, you know, we love a lot of Washington's precedents, but, you know, he did set, set this precedent. The president basically gets the, you know, gets his wish list. And, you know, we get aghast when the, uh, you know, depending on who's in power, we get aghast that the Senate is trying to, uh, you know, play politics with his uh, nominee. But, of course, that's their role. But I don't think it needed to be as adversarial as it has become, um, especially since since the 1980s and uh, the uh, the rejection of both Judge Bork and uh, um, I believe it was Senator Tower for Foreign Affairs, um, the and uh, for, or rather um, Secretary of State or Defense in uh, in the 80s that. Uh, We've gotten to the point where it's, it's getting increasingly, increasingly about each side ramming down a, a judge uh, who, while, while respected, is unabashedly on one end of the spectrum or the other. And it's created this, shouldn't be that we have such great fear every time there's an opening. You know, this should be a time where we come together uh, as a as a nation to, uh, to you know, to, to find the next great voice who will, you know, in a neutral way, assess the laws that we are given uh, or that they are given uh, to the facts that they're presented. And I think until we do that, until we get a more healthy approach to how this process runs, we're going to revisit this every visceral fear of either side when, when these not these openings uh, occur. And I think maybe there's something to be said about, you know, that's, that's a bad sign. Uh, as one article I read about uh, Ginsburg's legacy read that uh, in 20 years uh, when there's uh, a wave of, of deaths or retirements on the courts, um, you know, the next step, uh, you know, that many on the, on the right, fear as a reprisal uh, from the left is that even if they get Amy Barrett on the Supreme Court, that we're just going to be, uh, if we get a uh, Democratic Senate and Democratic Democratic president uh, uh, in this next term, is that the, the Democrats will just stack the courts, which is they have n- nothing in the Constitution preventing them from doing that. We may see 11, 13, 15 ju- justices on the Supreme Court before it's all over. Uh, and I think that's something that we need to avoid. I think the uh, the spirit of the Supreme Court is one of our our greater legacies as a, as a nation of coming together of great minds to discuss and to to argue on great issues. And the more the politics have seeped in, especially in the age of social media and twenty four hour news coverage, into the selection of of the Supreme Court. I think that puts us all at risk, whether you're, you're on the right or the left. I think you're right. But I have a question I want to pose before we, before we end this. Just one simple question. Take a look at the Senate. And let's assume that 20, 20 members of the Senate were not beholden to the Democrats or the Republicans. What kind of difference and would make? That all make all the difference. It would, yeah. it would it would get what you know I'm envis- envisioning in which they, you have to go into discussion on these on these on these matters because no one gets to no one would have the uh, presumptive ability to confirm you know when it's a same party same same president same same party for the president and the Senate to just uh, ram down uh, nominees you know at will. Uh, that you actually have to build a coalition. Well, also, it would, uh, like you pretty much just said, it would create the need to be more bipartisan, I guess, in that case, tripartisan, I guess. Um, the makeup of like our climate, um, one of the things that was pointed out as being inter- really interesting to me in uh, one of my college classes um, to where people are having to reach across the aisle and be like, hey, 
we really want this done and everything. Um, to touch back kind of on, they said to really look at the climate of a society, look at their media, like movies and TV shows. In uh, 2001, 2002, you had a lot of very bright, movies coming out thing spider-man and those kinds of stuff uh iron man where it's really all the colors are really bright and vibrant and it's a very uplifting kind of story and then look at what we have now you have in the game and stuff like that where it's a lot darker and grittier um, Batman versus Superman. It's very dark and gritty media content that is being put out right now, which kind of says that our society has become more of a darker, more uh, angry kind of society as opposed to the bright, loving, encouraging society that we had there shortly after the events of 9-11. I disagree. <laughs> Only because I thought Avengers Endgame was a rather hopeful film. Endgame is a hopeful film, but it has that dark look. Like, it's not the very bright movie like Iron Man was. It's got that darker, overcast tone to it. It was a movie that kind of inspired hope, but again, look at, like, the DC Universe movies where they're dark and gritty as opposed to the bright kind of films. Well, and what I will point out is using Endgame as a, as a concept to lead us to our ending here. Um, what Endgame really was was about taking this little piece of hope in a very dark situation and running with it. And that's what has to happen. See, I, yeah. thought, I thought it was just being able to see Thor as a fat guy. But, you know. <laughs> fat Thor. And, that was, and, and, and Captain America lived yeah. up Mjolnir. I mean, Obviously. I'm done. Well, <laughs> we'll end there as we wait to see who will pick up Justice Ginsburg's hammer. It's been real. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us. From the right, here I am, Jacob. On the left, Brandon. And, and our, our independent Ali. Until next time. And don't forget to check us out next week. We might have a very special guest. Sounds intriguing. I'm there. I'll buy a ticket. Good. <laughs> Bye. Have a good night, everybody.